Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. But what I want to talk about is how corrupt the economics of things are. And I'm telling you, I'm trying to be a realist here, how bad the economics could possibly be here in America because of this nonsense. And that lends us into where we're going today. Um, We're going to look at Israel now. They've come out of the Red Sea and they're going into the wilderness. And this is a time of testing for Israel. Israel will go through a series of tests. So in, in terms of salvation, the, the picture of Israel in Scripture is a picture of salvation. They're, they're saved out of the world. They were actually baptized by going through the, the Red Sea. That's how Paul said they were baptized, so to speak, using metaphorical languages. And then they come out, and their, their time in the desert is a time of testing. It's a time where they're growing, a time where they're preparing for their task. The interesting thing about the wilderness condition, Moses went through it, now Israel as a nation is going through it. The wilderness condition is a condition that God puts us all in. We will all go through wilderness conditions. Right now, we're going through one worldwide. This is a wilderness condition. Well, what do you mean? Wilderness conditions are meant to be a hostile environment to the person, group, or nation. So before Jesus starts his ministry, what does he do? Where does he go? Into the wilderness to be what? Tested. Paul, before he starts his mission work, goes into Arabia, the desert, right where the children of Israel are, and he goes there for, I think, two or three years. I think it was two. And he has his time in the desert as well. And it's it's always a time where... The environment is hostile to your physical needs to force you to seek your spiritual needs to be met first. It's a, that's, that's, what the, that's what the environment is supposed to do. So what, what is the first temptation that, that Satan throws out to Jesus in the wilderness? Turn this rock into bread. You'll satisfy your physical needs. And therein lies... One of the most basic, but most, uh, I, I guess you want to say general test that you will face in your life. And here is it, here it is. Will you and I pass the test of whether or not we're going to put our physical needs first before our spiritual needs? That's the test. And Israel's going to go through this right now. And that's, that's what they're going to learn. So they're going to come up. Uh, in a desert climate that's very hot, and obviously it's going to cause them to be thirsty. And it's a simple test, but nonetheless, it reveals a whole boatload of issues that Israel has, and, and it's going to reveal it for us to be able to apply it. Because I'm going to tell you, the desire to get our physical needs met in the future is going to put, be put at the test. Have you noticed that the restaurant prices are rising? Have you noticed that your food prices are rising? Okay? The food prices are rising, but your income is staying the same. Okay? And then you're going to see the bubble break, and you're going to see inflation start skyrocketing. And if they go to a digital currency, this is going to collapse the U.S. dollar, 
And what that means is I don't know, but it's not good for our economy, okay? And what Biden is doing right now is sending taxpayer money and redistributing our wealth to other countries and organizations like the UN and UNESCO and all these other crazy organizations that you and I have no say in. Okay, that being the case, you're going to look at a problem financially. Well, there's where the test is going to be. Will you and I compromise to get our needs met versus following God on this and making sure our spiritual needs are met first through God? So this is prime for where we're at in our culture, in our world. We are in the wilderness. Now, in Deuteronomy 8, after 40 years of this in the desert, God finally tells Israel, this is why I put you through this. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says this, And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you. That's what one of the reasons for the tests are, to humble us, to take our pride out of us, and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the test will be for them and for us, will we obey God or will we disobey to meet our needs? That's how it'll come to us. Okay. I'll unpack that a little bit more in the application of this, but let's look at what they go through. Verse 22. And so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Now again, the, it's a prelude to what's about to happen, but, 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 let me make this point. Even if you have a victory in your Christian walk, it doesn't mean that you've won the battle. You can have a victory, but I can tell you what's coming after that victory, another battle. And then you have to fight that battle, and then another battle will come, and then you have to fight another one, because we're in a war, and there, you're going to go through a series of battles. So Israel already is getting into the mindset that, wait, Wait, wait a second. We won the war against Egypt, man. Uh, God destroyed them. I see their corpses all over the sea and floating in the water and all over the beach. We've disarmed them and God's provided all their weaponry to us. What other battles could we possibly have? And so they're thinking that everything's going to be safe and normal. It's not. It's going to be one fight after the no- another. And so please understand, even though we've won some battles, Spiritually, more are coming because of the war we're in. And then it says this, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. This is the area in Saudi Arabia. This is where old Midian was, but it's really Saudi Arabia. And you can see on the map where they're at. This, on the yellow arrows is where they're at. There's a circle there is the general area, and they're going to move eastward. And what they're eventually going to move to is Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's in Arabia. All the evidence points to it being in this location. Well, anyway, here's where they're at. And this kind of condition, you can see some pictures of what the conditions look like. And it's very harsh conditions. It's dry. It doesn't rain at all, hardly. I mean, in summertime, you can in Arabia Desert, you can get 130. Uh, it's just blistering hot. Nothing really grows there except a couple of shrubs, and this is kind of what it looks like. Okay, so take this physical wilderness, but then then understand it from a spiritual level. 
On a spiritual level, it means that you're in a hostile environment that's working against you. That's where we're at, okay? So let's continue, and it says this, And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, notice the three days, and there's a theme there. I will pick up next week on the symbolism of all of this. But three days and found no water is, is it's, they're going to die, basically. They're going to die. You're in the desert, and you go three days without water, your organs will start shutting down on you. You will physically start shutting down because you're dehydrated, okay? So that's kind of where they're at. So let me make a point here before we move on. You will hear in Christendom, especially in American Christendom, this idea, well, God will never give you more than you can bear. That's not accurate. That passage comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's regards to temptation. He will never give you more temptation than you can bear. He will provide a way of escape. So no one can ever say, I was tempted beyond what I can bear. It does not refer to trials. It does not refer to tests. Paul will say in, in to the, the, the Corinth church in 2 Corinthians that he was pressed so hard he nearly died. That's being pushed to the limit. Now, Israel's going to get pushed to the limit because three days in the Arabian desert, you're going to physically start having problems among two million people. Why does God push us to the limit? Well, like he said in that Deuteronomy 8 passage, is to humble you, to knock your pride out, so he will get you to that level to where you reach out to him. Look, when everything's nice and everything's going as it has been in America for so long, people start getting complacent. The American church became extremely complacent, especially in the last 10, 20 years. And because of that complacency, we're seeing that it's hard for God to wake up the church. Even this last year didn't wake a lot of people up like we thought it would. It woke up some people, but it didn't wake up a lot of people because they're still able to satisfy their physical appetites even in this condition. Okay? So just having a change of scenery a little bit doesn't wake you up, then, then God will just keep turning it up and then turning it up and turning it up. And that's what he's doing with, I think, American Christianity. It's what he's doing with Israel, obviously. And he's going to push people to the limit to wake them up. Hey, the way you avoid that is wake up when he first knocks on your door. That's how you avoid it. He says, I'm trying to get your attention. Okay, I'm awake. I'm awake. That's the best way to do it. And not have to be pressed with your physical life. Okay, so let's continue on. He says this. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Marah in Hebrew means bitter. So that's, they named the place uh, after the water there. So what's happening here? Again, let me show you a map of where we think Marah is. Marah is in this general vicinity here. And we've had some people, you can't get into Saudi Arabia archaeologically, they won't let you go in there, but these areas have been explored by other Christians who work for like uh, oil companies there, like Exxon, Chevron, and other places like that, and they were able to venture off on furlough into these locations, and they were able to take pictures. 
And some of the pictures they take were amazing. They found all these locations. Like when we go to Mount Sinai, uh, later in the text, you will see all the archaeological remains there that they put, took pictures of. You will see the, the altar there. You will see the 12 pillars. You'll see everything that Moses said was there. It's there still in Arabia. You will see Jethro's caves. They're still there. And even to this day, if you go in this general area where they went, they believe they found the, the waters of Mara. So this is an archaeological research couple that lived there in Saudi Arabia, as, and they worked in the oil. Uh, I can't remember if they worked for Exxon or, or, or Chevron or whoever. But anyway, they, this is where they went exploring, and they found these locations. Now, this location is, is in concert with close to Elim. It's, it's, it's the path they would have taken, okay? It's the best guess. Interesting that today, when you taste these waters from this creek or this stream, they're extremely sweet. Now, what are the waters that they found? They were bitter. But then they're, today, extremely sweet. They're the sweetest waters you can drink. Now, I'll explain where the sweetness comes from next week when we get into how God dealt with the water. My only point is, when they get there, they're dying. They're dehydrated. There's too many of them. They need water. Or they're all going to start physically dying. And so they come there, and they find the water, and they start drinking it, and it's brackish. It, uh, which in the way it, what it's saying in, in the idea in the text is it has a high mineral content to make the water bitter. You can't drink it. There's too many mer- minerals in it. it. So they're like on an ocean, and you're... you're, you're wanting water, and you're surrounded by water, but you can't drink it. It's that kind of situation. So they think they have found it, but it ends up being something they can't resource. So that's where the test is, and that's where it leads us right now. The test for Israel is, okay, you found this water, but it's no good. Will you turn to Yahweh for help... Or will you turn in disbelief towards your own devices? That's where it's at. And that's where you and I are going to be at. So, let's look at their response. Verse 24. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? They didn't pass the test. They failed. So what do they do? They start taking it out on Moses, which will happen the next 40 years. They always will take it out on their leadership. Always. They always start blaming Moses. I don't know how he put up with it for 40 years. Honestly, uh, I, I think that's, that's why one time he says, Lord, won't you just take me home? I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done. It, it, they just drove him crazy because they would always blame Moses. For goodness sake. Um, and so they go after him and they say, what shall we drink? So instead of going to Yahweh, they, 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 they try to attack Moses. Okay, obviously. What Israel's problem is, is they're focusing too much on their physical condition. And that focusing so much on the physical condition is blinding them to Yahweh. What do I mean? Well, they just went through the Red Sea. They just went through the ten plagues. 
Why are they not thinking, well, I know God will provide. Look what he did to the Egyptians. Look what he did to us in Egypt. How come that's not on their thought process? Why are they not thinking that way? Because when you have mispriorities and you put yourself first, getting your needs met, it will blind you. It will blind you to other people's needs and it definitely will blind you to God. God will not be that reality to you and so therefore you will go into trying to figure out how to meet your own physical needs. And that's where God doesn't want us to be. So that being the case, that's the problem. That's the problem we face. That's the problem we're going to face is this. And so what I want to do now is I want to turn our direction because this is where I want to stop in the story. I'll pick up on it next week on the miraculous and the supernatural because it's highly, highly symbolic and it takes a while for me to dig through that. But what I want to do now is this apparently has been Israel's problem from, the, from day one. They're always worried about getting their physical needs met, which is exactly like us. That's how we are as well. And this continues on all through their history. They'll do alliances with people to preserve themselves. They'll do an alliance with this country for security. And they'll do everything for self-preservation. Okay, self-preservation is their problem, like ours. So then you go into the Gospels, and it's still a problem. It is still a problem among Israel. And so Jesus addresses this, and, and man, he really unpacks the problem. And he does it in the Sermon on the Mount. So what I'm going to show you is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that addresses this very problem that you see with Israel in the Exodus. And it will help you and I understand how we need to pass this test that's coming. Okay, So let's now turn to Matthew 6. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Same principle. And this is what he's dealing with. Okay. So he tells Israel in the Gospels, he says this, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will uh, put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So notice right out of the box, Jesus starts addressing this issue. Israel, you are making too much out of providing for your physical needs. And he says, this this worry, this anxiety that you have about your physical needs being met, that's a problem. What is worry and what is anxiety? Let's unpack that because a lot of people are worried and anxiety, have anxiety about what's coming in the future here in the United States, how they will meet their needs. Worry and anxiety is different than concern. You can be concerned and you should be concerned. Okay? So it's, we're not advocating being checked out of reality. We're at, we advocate being concerned, being in reality, understand what's going on, but we're not to have anxiety and worry. Well, what do you mean? Anxiety and worry is something that you and I project into the future and we project a catastrophic thing happening to our lives. Like, oh my goodness, if I lose my job, all is lost. It's kind of the, the chicken little, the sky is falling type of mentality. Well, what happens this way? And what happens that way? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? It's all these hypotheticals we will drum up for future. And so we become afraid of the future by what we're projecting into it, 
Therefore, we have anxiety. Anxiety will affect you mentally, emotionally, and physically, by the way. It paralyzes people with fear. That's why it's a sin. Because you're projecting into the future things that you think God won't provide for. That somehow, he just won't meet those needs physically for you. So you got to do something right now to manipulate the situation. Well, guess what? We're in situations where you will have no power economically to do anything. You just won't. And so all, all that anxiety is going to be wasted on your life because you can't fix what's happening. You're going to have to go to spiritual uh, principles and rely on God to provide for you economically. Okay. So he's, he says that right out of the box, that you're worried about your own life. And he goes, is not life more than food and body, more than clothing? He's saying, look, there's something more valuable in this life than your physical life. It's your spiritual life. That's what's more valuable. That's why you see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, when people fast, you know why they're doing that? It's not that they're trying to get God to do something for them, even though they are praying and seeking him. What fasting does, it denies the flesh, it denies the physical appetites of the body, so in order to put the spiritual priorities first above the physical priorities. And in doing so, you seek God making sure that your spiritual priorities are in line with his Spiritually, that's what the idea of fasting is about. It's not a weight loss system, guys. I know people try to do that, the Daniel diet and all this kind of junk that they drum up. It's, it's prioritizing things. Okay. So he goes, he goes on and he says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? Okay. So he gives an analogy of birds. And the idea is, is this is a Hebrew way of speaking. This is a rabbinic way of speaking. You go from the lesser to the greater. And sometimes you, you, you reverse the two, greater to the lesser. But that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, God created a bird. The bird has value, but it does not have the same value as a human being who's made in God's image. We are image bearer, bearers. And so because of that, we have a, an extremely high value in creation. Okay, So if he cares for birds what do you think he's going to do for humans, right? But notice how Jesus says the Father cares for the birds, okay? He's wanting to know what you know about birds, okay? Here's the question. Does the Father create bird feeders all over the planet, For and they're in these glass cases, and God says, come birds, come to the bird feeder, and I'll feed you at the bird feeding station. And then the birds come, and they feed, and they get. No, it doesn't happen that way, right? You know birds are not fed that way. But he's saying God feeds them, though. The key to understand this passage, and the key to understand how he deals with us, is God provides for the birds providentially. He doesn't serve up the worms on a plate to them. What does the bird have to do? He has to go look for it. The early bird gets the worm, right? 
So the bird has to go out and actually do it. Now, he doesn't think, oh, i got to be responsible. I've got to wake up today. It's just instinctual. He goes and looks for it. And what, providentially, what God's doing is saying, I lay out the food for them, and they have to go out and find it. Oh, so that helps me understand what Jesus is saying about humans. It is not God's intention to serve up your needs on a silver platter. Oh, you need a job? Well, just sit back on your couch and keep watching Kojak, and I'll just serve you up a brand new job. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't work that way, does it? No, you got to fill out a resume, and you got to go hit the, hit the street and put your resume out. And providentially, as you do that and seek the Lord, providentially, he provides that for you. So guess what it implies? You want God's help? Then you need to be responsible for what you're responsible for. Just like a bird does. And so at the end of the day, how does that figure into my physical needs? Well, it comes into this. Your physical needs will be met if you put your priorities straight spiritually and you're responsible for doing what you need to do. If that's the case, then you can get your needs met providentially. But let's continue on. He makes some other caveats here that I want to bring out. He says this in verse 27. Which of you, by worrying or having anxiety, can add one cubit to his stature? He's saying, look, what you're not going to add to your life by worrying about your physical needs. See, the, the idea is, well, if I get my physical needs met, then I'll live longer. He's saying, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. You're not going to be able to extend your life by focusing just simply on your physical needs. By the way, Hezekiah extended his life by 15 years, but do you know how Hezekiah did it? It wasn't because he was eating vegetables and eating clean. How did Hezekiah extend his life? He put the spiritual first and asked the Lord for more time. And what did the Lord say? Okay, I'll give you 15 more years. You see what happens to Jesus saying, you can start eating carrots and cucumbers and all this good clean food and think you're going to make your life longer by that. And he's saying, you don't understand. Your life is extended by God if he gives you that grace at the end of the day. Now, I'm not saying go out and live an unhealthy life. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, you have to understand the spiritual you're a spiritual body unit. And so you can't ignore the spiritual. You can't. And so he continues on. And he goes, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith. So let's, let's bring some more, to a more modern day understanding. Back then, their clothing, they had one set of clothing for the entire year. Usually you got new clothes once a year in that setting, okay? So, but again, it's the idea of shelter. It's the idea of, of being not just simply clothing, but the idea that you're protected from the elements, okay? So you get your food, your water, and your protection from the elements. God is saying, I know what conditions are coming your way. 
And if you do certain things, I will protect you from the elements. I will guard, I will shield you economically, and I will provide for you physically to, that you can make it through this. Do, do you know how God protected Israel from the elements of the heat in the Arabian desert? Have you ever studied this? If you watch, you know the Shekinah led them, right? The Shekinah glory led them. But the Shekinah also put a cloud over them during the day. Now, I want you to think about that. This is in Saudi Arabia. I mean, 135 degrees, 140. So what God did to protect them from the heat is during the day, he would cover them with a cloud during the day, and that cloud made it cool. It, it gave them the, the protection from the sun. You know what happened that night in the Arabian desert? It gets very cold. It's a sudden change. It goes up, almost upside down at night. Extremely cold at night. You know what God did? The Shekinah turned into a fire and gave them the warmth at night. You see how God even protected them of their elements? He even, you can see this at the end of it, he said, I didn't even allow your clothes to wear out. The clothes they came into the desert with are the same clothes they left with. For 40 years, the clothes never wore out that they were on, that was on them. That's the supernatural. And you're thinking, wow. Okay, that's what he's trying to say. I, God can protect you from the elements, O ye of little faith. Continue on, though, but I want to get to this. This is important. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. Now, you and I are Gentiles. There's a few Jews in here, and we're made up of the body of Christ. But back then, when, when Jesus was referring to Gentiles, he's referring to them as unbelievers, because he was only coming to, he, he was only speaking to Israel at this time. In essence, essence, what the, what Jesus is saying is, if you prioritize your physical appetites first, your physical body first, you are no different than a pagan. You are functioning like a pagan. You're running around this world like a pagan and as an unbeliever. And he goes, I don't want you doing that. That's not, that's not you because your father takes care of you. And he can, says this, for your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Not your wants, not your wish list, nor anything like that, but he knows exactly what you need. And this is important because I ran into this problem when my kids were little, and this is where I was stumbling in my faith. When your kids are little, you're worried about their futures, you're worried about what's going to happen to them, you all, the path they're going to take, and how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that, how is this going to happen, and, and like... You can get so bogged down, you can literally collapse thinking about like the future of your kids in this kind of crazy world. And I would have those bouts, man. I was just, man, I don't know how this is going to happen. And uh, yeah, you start planning. And I'm not saying not to plan. You start planning for college. You start planning for this. You, you do your best. But at the end of the day, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're always going to come up short. You're just going to come up short. Financially, whatever your plans are, you're just going to come up short. And, and then when those shortfalls hit, you're like, oh man, how's this going to happen? That's where God comes in. Okay. You can do all your planning, but at the end of the day, what I realized is where I came up short, God would always provide. Somehow, some way, He came in. And I realized, I heard some, a preacher say this, and I can't remember who said it. 
But I remember them saying this when my kids were little. They said, do you not think that God loves your kids more than you? I thought about that, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm pretending that I love my kids more than God. But I have a corrupted love. God has a pure love. Of course he loves my kids more than I do. Of course he will provide the best for my kids. Of course. And I had to have my head readjusted and get my head screwed on straight because that was a lack of faith on my part towards God and realizing he can provide, and I can testify now. My kids are older now. Where I came up short, he provided every step of the way. I don't know how we did it. I can only say it's a God thing. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to Israel and to us. But now let me give you the caveat. You ready for this? Most people misunderstand what you're about to read. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay? And then what's the the promise afterwards? And all these things shall be added to you. Okay, let's stop right there before we get to the promise. Seek first the kingdom of God. The first thing you have to know about this passage is what form or manifestation of the kingdom is Jesus referring to, to understand the passage. Because there's different manifestations of the kingdom of God. There's the eternal kingdom, obviously, that he's always been the king of, the eternal kingdom. He forever will be the king. But then there's been different manifestations. There's been the theocratic kingdom where he ruled physically uh, in his presence at, at the country of Israel. That's a theocratic kingdom. We're currently right now in what we call the mystery kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom made up of believers, and no one can really see the physical manifestation other than the believers themselves manifesting the kingdom. And then there's the messianic kingdom that comes a thousand years uh, um, when Jesus rules in, uh, on David's throne in Israel for a thousand years. That's the millennium or the messianic kingdom. But he's not referring to any of those. He's referring to another manifestation of the kingdom, which is called the spiritual kingdom. Okay? So let me unpack this. The spiritual kingdom has always existed, but it's, it, it's not part of the eternal kingdom. It is part of the eternal kingdom, but God's in control, in control of eternity. We were created at some point in time in history, obviously. So the spiritual kingdom consists of only believers from Adam until the end of history. Only believers. No unbelievers in this, okay? And so basically, to understand the spiritual kingdom, it is the Lord's rule in the heart of the believer. So he rules right in here, if the believer allows him to. He rules right here, and these are all the passages that go with it. So in this passage, that's the kingdom he's referring to, okay? But notice what he adds to it. Seek first this kingdom, okay, the spiritual kingdom, and what? His righteousness is the other caveat, the one-two punch in the text. So let's explain this. You have to be a born-again believer in order to even access the help of God, okay? He, he, he helps his believers. He helps his children. So the first thing is you have to have entrance into this kingdom, which is by being born again. That's the spiritual kingdom. The second aspect for the believer, notice what I'm using, 
believer, not unbeliever. The second aspect for the believer is the believer has to be on the agenda of righteousness. He has to or she has to be under the umbrella of prioritizing the spiritual aspects versus seeking their own path and doing things that benefit them physically. They've got to put the spiritual kingdom first. His righteousness is what that's referring to, not their own agenda. And that separates who gets the help and who doesn't get the help. What do you mean? Well, this is a conditional. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, physical needs will be met. Right? All these other things will be added to you. He's talking about water, food, shelter, all this other stuff that you need will be met if you do this. But what's the opposite? What's the opposite if you reverse it? If a believer doesn't seek the righteousness of God, in essence, what I'm talking about is the believer starts pursuing their own interests to satisfy their physical demands, you will not have these things added to you from the Father. You will slice your throat by living for yourself. You will not get the help. God wants to help you. He promises to help you. But if you cut yourself off from him and start seeking your kingdom, your fiefdom, your livelihood to try to extend your physical life, guess what? You've just cut yourself off from his help. He will not help you. He wants to help you, but he only helps believers who come under his agenda. That's what's not taught about this passage, typically, because it's conditional. Now, here's the thing about this. We as a church are actually living this out, and I want to explain this to you, because it's real. It's not hypothetical. I'm watching it. And I want to share it with you because I want you to apply it to your personal life. This is a big deal. So, for instance, as you know, we got shut down and we didn't know all the situation was going on. And so then once we figured out all the issues of the COVID thing and the China virus and all that stuff. By the way, I'm in uh, I'm in jail right now on YouTube for saying vaccines or virus or all this stuff. So I'm in jail for another two weeks. Anyway. We figured it out, and so we started back with a minority of churches back up on Pentecost in May. Okay, you know the story, okay. The reason we started back up was Hebrews 10.25. The church made a decision based on the scriptures that we are not to forsake the gathering of ourselves. Okay, something simple as that. I did not realize at the time how significant that decision for our church was. I had no idea. I now understand why. In contrast with us and the other churches going back to regular services, a majority of churches decided not to go back. Do you know why? Well, I know they were giving lip service saying, well, you know, we, want, we want to obey the authorities when they misinterpreted Romans 13. The, the jurisdiction we're under is the Constitution, not Gavin Newsom. Okay, so... We'll, that's that's illegitimate to legitimize shutting down the church in Romans 13. That's that's a misunderstanding of the passage. 
But the other churches came along and said, well, we care about people, and we don't want people to get sick, and we don't want to spread a deadly virus that kills the whole church, and so uh, they're mainly afraid of being sued. I just want to give you a heads up. Um, they don't so much care about people. They care about getting sued. But we, we want to exercise loving thy neighbor, so we're going to shut down and, uh, uh, because we're physically afraid of people getting sick. Did you catch it? It was subtle, and it was spiritualized and baptized in Christian language. We are doing loving thy neighbor. We're obeying the authority. A clear violation of Hebrews 10.25 was at stake. Right there in plain sight, black and white. And they spiritualized a decision for self-preservation. Instead of putting the spiritual first, they put the physical first. Which is exactly what Israel did about the water. Is exactly what Jesus is preaching about in the Sermon on the Mount. You do, you do not put the physical as a priority over the spiritual. You can't do that. That's a mistake. And these churches that you watch still close down today are going out of business. They will not be able to pay their bills because they decided self-preservation and we're going to extend our lives and, and make sure people don't get sick. They are going in the tank. But let's go over to this side. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and what will happen? All these other things that you need, Brandon, will be added unto you. I can tell you from the day we started back, something changed. Something clicked. I have, and I've been in ministry for 20-something years. I've never seen things like I've seen before. I've seen absolute miracles, and I've seen miracles even this last week. Stuff that you could never imagine happening to our church. Why? I think it's because of this principle. We put him first, his scriptures first. We didn't put our physical needs first. We put going back to church. And what I have seen from the time we've started back is this miraculous adding to us of people who are like-minded, not looky-loos, but like-minded believers equipped and have all kinds of gifts. Then at the second tier, I've seen the finances that I've never seen before. Look, guys, I worked at a mega church. I saw, I saw millions of dollars. But the, the percentages that we're bringing in, I have never seen even at that level. Never. Think about this. Since, since July to this month, we have taken in excess close to a million dollars in excess. I, it's crazy. Um, that's a God thing. All these other things will be added unto you, right? We need a building. I'm looking at a 5.1 price tag. How am I going to pay that? God says, don't worry about it. I got it. I got it. Because you put me first. You didn't put your health first. You put me first. All these other things will be added to you. Let's continue on. The adding. Every month I see unbelievable stuff coming in. So this month, I get a call, and Monica says, hey, there's someone, someone in YouTube land, you know, on, in the Internet that watches us out there, and there's plenty of them out there. There's like 53,000 people watching us, 17 different countries all over the United States. 
So I get a call. She says, yeah, this lady wants to donate $70,000. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, and, and I mean, just I've never met the lady. She never attended. But they watch us online like people are watching us right now. They watch us online. So you get $70,000. So I was like, wow, that's that's God. Okay, so then I'm going along my week. And so Friday, I get, I'm on another call. And the call I'm on with is an individual. And we're chit-chatting around about, you know, uh, going into our new facility. And that's coming up in a few weeks. We're going to make the move. But even talking about our new facility we're building. And so the question is, hey, hey you know, um, I know you're going to be buying chairs and you got, you're buying a, a, a temporary stage for your, for your, uh, well, how much is that going to cost? I'm like, well, it's, it's probably going to run us about $25,000. I mean, cause the chairs we buy are, we're going to use for the new building. And so, uh, and then the stage is, is a certain amount of money. And you go, I go, so I'm thinking around $25,000. He's like, all right, I'll get it for you. No problem. It's done. And I'm like, wait a second. I go, let me pick up the gaping hole I have in my mouth from my jaw dropping. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, um, you're, you're, doing, you're doing good work, and, and so we, we want to help you in that. I'm like, wow, okay. So I start looking at all of this, and I take a step back, and I'm thinking, did it all stem from that one decision to prioritize the spiritual over the physical? I think it did. Because I cannot explain all these other things that were added unto the church. I can't explain them. But I know this. Our needs are met. Everything is met. It's amazing. That being the case, I wanted you to see that from a church level because I want you to apply it on a personal level. If you will prioritize Jesus in your life, He will do the same thing for you. He will meet your needs. He will provide jobs if you need them. He will provide for your kids. He will provide an education. He will provide all the things you're worried about. He will provide. He says, put me first. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.